Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Split the Difference podcast, which explores divergence between the EU and UK regulatory regimes in the market space. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge, and today I'm joined by Hannah Meakin, a financial services partner in our London office, Florida Nagelkirk, a financial services partner in our Amsterdam office, Anna Carrier, a legal consultant in our financial services regulatory and government relations practice in Brussels, and Lucy Dodson, a consultant in our London office. Today, my colleagues will be discussing the recent and upcoming changes to EMEA in both the EU and the UK. Lucy, if I could come to you first, please. I believe there are a couple of changes to the clearing obligation, one of which is in relation to pension scheme arrangements. Could you provide more colour on this, please? Yes, of course. So as we all know, currently UK pension funds are exempt from the clearing obligation under UK EMEA as a result of the Article 89 transitional provisions. This exemption has been extended several times with the current exemption expiring after the 18th of June of this year. HM Treasury has the power to extend this exemption by up to two years at a time. And on the 20th of March, it published guidance stating its plans to lay a statutory instrument extending the exemption for a further two years until the 18th of June 2025 through amendments to Article 89.1 of UK EMEA. A review of the pension fund exemption will be conducted ahead of its expiry in 2025, allowing time for consideration and implementation of a longer term approach. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, Forger, if I could turn to you now, what are the EU's plans for pension scheme exemption? Yeah, so in the uh, as in the UK, EU pension funds currently benefit from an exemption from the clearing obligation on the AMIR, and this exemption is due to expire by uh, uh, 18 June of this year, so 2023. However, in contrast to the UK, the European Commission's June 2022 report to the European Parliament and Council calling for the current exemption made it clear that there would be no further exemptions. And from 19 June 2023, EU pension scheme arrangement would be required under AMIR to clear. So far, the European Commission has made no further announcement on the pension scheme arrangement exemption. However, there is a proposal to amend AMIR, AMIR 3.0, which includes an amendment that would exempt from the clearing obligation those EU financial and non-financial counterparties subject to the clearing obligation under AMIR that enter into a transaction with a pension scheme arrangement established in a third country, which is exempted from a clearing obligation under international law. Thank you, Flaudry, for that update. Now, you just mentioned a moment ago the EMEA 3.0 proposal, the European Commission's proposal to amend EMEA. Anna, if I could draw you in now, could you tell us a little bit more about this proposal? Yes, of course, Simon. So EMEA 3.0 is how we refer to the European Commission's proposal published in early December last year to amend EMEA. This proposal is a part of a broader set of legislative amendments known as the Capital Markets Union Clearing Insolvency and Listing Package. The main objective of amendments to EMIR is to make EU clearing services more attractive and resilient, in particular vis-à-vis the UK CCPs. And this is directly linked to a lengthy and highly politicized debate on the location of euro clearing, which intensified following the UK departure from the EU. We all remember discussions back in the day about the European Central Bank's proposed location policy for, um, uh, for CCPs clearing um, euro-denominated products, which 
ended up in um, in in such a policy being annulled by the General Court of the European Euro Union. So, with this recent proposal, the European Commission intends to provide a framework that would result in moving at least some of the euro clearing from the UK to the European CCPs. And in terms of some of the concrete proposals on how to do it. The European Commission proposes to introduce an obligation for financial and non-financial counterparties that are subject to the clearing obligation to have directly or indirectly an active account with uh, EU CCP and clear at least a proportion of trades identified as having substantial systemic importance in such a European CCP. And the relevant in-scope contracts currently would include interest rate derivatives denominated in euros and in um, Polish Swati, credit default swaps denominated in euros and short-term interest rate derivatives denominated in euros. So the actual proportion of transactions in derivatives that will need to be cleared via the active account, as well as the details of the calibration of the activity to be maintained in these active accounts and the reporting requirements of transactions cleared at such active accounts are all to be set at um, via level two, so secondary legislation measures. So we're still at the very early stages of legislative review, but it is to it is fair to say that the proposal concerning active account obligation is clearly one of the most controversial ones in this package of amendments and stirring controversy both within the industry but also amongst member states. But moving on from this one particular um, uh, proposed amendment, other measures um, proposed and um, aimed at encouraging market participants to move more euro clearing to EU CCPs is an obligation for clearing members and clients providing clearing services both end in European CCP at, at the recognized third country CCP to provide information to their clients about possibility of clearing of the relevant contracts at the European CCPs. And EU clearing members and EU-based clients would also have to report to their competent authorities about the scope of clearing undertaken at a non-European CCPs. But EMIR um, 3.0 proposals is not just about the euro clearing. So it's it also includes some targeted amendments to other provisions. And this uh, mainly includes changes to the provisions on intra-group exemptions, clearing obligations for financial and non-financial counterparties, as well as changes to the procedures for the authorization and recognition of CCPs, the extension of CCPs activities and services, amending rules governing CCPs participation, margin collateral requirements, as well as supervisory processes. And the package also includes some targeted amendments to uh, sector legislation, such as the um, usage directive, investment firms that um, directive the capital requirements directive capital requirements regulation but again these are broadly focused on encouraging clearing for example by removing from the usage directive the current counterparty risk limits for cleared and um, otc and derivative transactions but just to sum up and not to extend any longer the emir 3.0 amendments are now under review by European Parliament and by member states, and they are unlikely to be adopted this year. That said, if proposal is to be formally adopted without major delay, it would have to be agreed by February 2024 next year, the latest, as after that, the European Parliament will be in recess for elections that will take place in later in Q2 2024, and there will be and then the process will be followed by nomination of new College of Commissioners. So if those proposals are to be adopted timely, they will have to be done relatively promptly in order to avoid a further delay. Thank you, Anna, for that really helpful update. There's indeed a lot happening in the EU. Perhaps if we could now focus on one thing 
um, that's been mentioned in the context of the EMEA review, and that is margin and collateral. Perhaps we could start with the UK perspective. Uh, Hannah, um, I understand that the Bank of England has updated what is to be considered as eligible collateral for bilateral margining requirements. Could you tell us more? Yes, of course. So in December last year, 2022, following consultation, the PRA and the FCA published a policy statement that set out, amongst other things, a decision to update the list of eligible collateral for bilateral margining to include funds from all third countries that meet a set of principles and that only invest in otherwise eligible government securities and cash. So where firms accept third country funds as collateral, the regulators expect firms to be able to demonstrate that they have a completed, that they've completed a risk assessment that confirms the jurisdiction's legal framework for the funds, provides comparable risk management protections to those applied to UK USITs. As we all know, the bilateral margining requirements require counterparties to exchange variation margin and initial margin. Prior to Brexit, EEA USITs were included as eligible collateral under the EMEA that the UK was, was part of as well. However, following Brexit, in line with the default treatment of the EU as a third country, as far as the UK is concerned, the eligibility of EEA USITs as collateral was removed and in its place UK USITs were added to the eligible collateral list. EEA USITs remained eligible collateral under the transitional provisions and the temporary eligibility was actually extended until the end of last year. Therefore, the recent update to the list of eligible collateral could put counterparties back in the position they were, they were previously in prior to Brexit, by allowing the EEA USITs to be considered as eligible, but provided they pass this risk assessment test. Okay, thanks, Hannah. Uh, Anna, if I could go back to you now. From an EU perspective, are there any changes to the exchange of margin obligation which make it different to what is in the UK? Or have there been any changes to what can be used as collateral? Yes. So, um, as indicated earlier, in the context of the ongoing uh, EMEA review, the European Commission proposed some targeted changes to the rules governing the eligible collateral and CCP. Piece, uh, that the CCPs can accept. So first of all, the Commission proposed amendments that would oblige European CCPs to continuously rise and the level of their margins while taking into the account any potentially cyclical effects of such revisions. But in terms of um, collateral and eligible collateral, the Commission proposed that um, bank guarantees and public guarantees could be subject to conditions considered as highly liquid collateral. They could be accepted as collateral provided they're unconditionally available upon request within the um, liquidation period. But there were also some um, further changes um, regarding um, transparency in the application of margins. And to this end, there is an obligation um, uh, to be introduced for the clearing members and clients providing clearing services that would um, require them to inform their clients of the way the margin models of the CCP work including in stress situations and provide them with a simulation of the margin requirements and also to inform them of the potential losses or other costs that they may bear as a result of the application of default management procedures and loss position allocation arrangements under the CCP's operating rules. Thank you, Anna. I'd just now like to move on to reporting requirements under EMEA. Uh, Florica, perhaps you, you can cover this from an EU perspective. Uh, can we expect to see any changes in the EU in relation to EMEA reporting? And if so, 
when can we expect these being introduced? Yes, I'm happy to elaborate a bit on that. So uh, AMIR refit, which is a set of amendments to AMIR, which is adopted in 2019, updated AMIR in relation uh, to the reporting requirements, the risk mitigation techniques for OTC derivative contracts, which are not cleared by a CCP, the registration supervision and requirements for trade repositories. So quite a full set of amendments. It entered into force on the 17, 17 June 2020, sorry, 20. 19. Once the majority of the EMEA refit amendments uh, have already become applicable, so in relation to the clearing obligation and the risk mitigation, certain elements are due to become applicable on 20, 29th of April 2024. These mainly refer to the reporting requirements, access to the reported data by public authorities, data reconciliation, and the requirements for re trade repositories. In terms of the uh, reporting requirements specifically. Interestingly, one of the amendments to Article 9 uh, of AMIR introduced an exemption from reporting intra-group derivative contracts when at least one of the counterparties is a non-financial counterparty or would be qualified as such if it was established in the EU. It also sets out conditions for this exemption to apply. This is something that is now being changed again as the AMIR 3.0 proposal deletes the exemption from reporting obligation when at least one of the counterparties is a non-financial counterparty, with the argument being to ensure better visibility on intergroup transactions. In the relation to the execution of the reporting obligation, AMIR refit uh, clarifies which counterparty to a derivative transaction is responsible and legally liable for discharging the reporting requirement and ensuring that the correct details uh, are reported. On 7 October 2022, a set of commission delegated and implementing regulations was published in the EU official journal that will repeal and replace the currently applicable rules. And as mentioned earlier, they will apply from 29th of April 2024, so almost just over a year. In December 2022, ESMA published its guidelines and technical documentation on reporting under AMIA refit. The amendments result in the increase of total report, reporting fields to 203, which should be reported in a single report. The new Commission delegated regulations set out further technical clarifications regarding reporting of clear trades, reporting at position level, reporting of exposures, the notional amount, price, and the linking of the reports. Further technical details are set out in an implementing regulation, including an obligation to use an ISO 17442 legal uh, identify entity identifier code to identify a broking entity, a CCP, a clearing member, a counterparty that is a legal entity, a report submitting entity, an entity responsible for reporting, and a post-trade risk reduction service provider. This new implementing regulation also sets out rules determining a direction of a derivatives, depending on the type of contract, rules regarding identification of the type of collateralization of a derivative contract or a portfolio of derivatives, as well as rules regarding specification, identification, and classification of derivatives. Under the revised reporting requirements, counterparties will have to use the UTI, the unique tra trade identifier, generated in accordance with the rules set out in the implementing regulation. Finally, 
because it's a lot. This implementing regulation sets out rules regarding reporting of LEA changes and update of identification code to LEI, as well as methods and arrangements for reporting and the date by which derivatives contracts are to be reported. So more to come. Thank you, Florja. Uh, Hannah, are we expecting similar changes in the UK or will there be any divergence between the two regimes? Actually, um, in the UK, we're implementing very similar changes. So by way of background, in November 2021, the FCA and the Bank of England published a joint consultation setting out their proposals to amend the framework for derivatives reporting, um, as well as procedures for data quality and registration for UK trade repositories. The relevant policy statement was published quite recently in February this year. And the aim of the new rules is really to align the UK derivatives reporting regime with international guidance that was published by CPMI IOSCO um, so that we can help to create a more globally consistent data set. So the policy statement uh, does note a limited number of instances where the proposed UK rules will diverge from the IOSCO guidance. But I think actually in most cases, the EU seems to be taking a similar approach on those points. The, the regulatory authorities believe that these adjustments where they do diverge slightly from the IOSCO guidance shouldn't prevent that international aggregation of derivatives data with other jurisdictions. So some examples of, of where those divergences from the international standards um, will exist are the, first of all, the execution timestamp field. So as UK, the, the UK requires counterparties to report on both exchange traded derivatives and OTC derivatives, the UK will include what, what it calls an enriched definition on how to populate the execution timestamp field to make sure it captures um, both types of derivatives in the reports. Additionally, the UK will not include an intent to clear field because its inclusion would not provide any additional data um, that would support the regulator's objectives. And the UK will not include a BILT option under the venue of execution field. So this option is intended for situations where a reporting counterparty can't determine whether a given instrument is admitted to trading or is traded on a trading venue. But that shouldn't be a problem in the UK because the FCA publishes details of instruments that are admitted to trading um, or traded on both UK and EEA trading venues on a daily basis. There are also a small number of uh, new fields which the UK will introduce to improve the overall data quality of um, UK EMEA data, which are not actually in the IOSCO guidance. Um, so these would include fields to identify aspects of a derivative trade that relate to post-trade risk reduction services, a position UTI field to link derivative trades that are reported at trade level that are subsequently included in a position level report, and also a derivative based on crypto asset field to start to identify uh, derivatives um, on, on digital assets. But as I say, these are really differences between the UK regime and the IOSCO standards. The, the real difference between the UK and the EU regime is the proposed uh, timeline. So the UK rules will be implemented five months later than the European rules on Monday, the 30th of September 2024. Alongside the policy statement, draft versions of the required XML schemas and the UK EMEA validation rules were also published. 
um, and the FCA and the Bank of England have said that these should be finalised shortly. Therefore, market participants will have over 18 months in which to operationally implement the new requirements. Um, and the regulators have said that they think it's more desirable to give market participants a greater amount of time to incorporate the new requirements into their operational processes properly than to coordinate with their implementation with other jurisdictions, including the EU. One additional point to note is that market participants have a further six months on top of the 18 months implementation period in which to update outstanding derivatives reports in line with new requirements. So these will need to be completed by the 31st of March 2025. Um, the regulators have stated that they will provide supporting guidance on how to reconcile reports in different formats during this period, and they will apply their supervisory powers for this requirement in a proportionate and risk-based manner during that period. Thank you, Hannah. And, um, and my last question, uh, Lucy, if, if I could call on you. Um, could you provide some colour on the Bank of England's approach to tiering on UK central counterparties? Yes, so well, Simon, as we all know, um, CCPs operate across borders and therefore the risks can be transferred across these borders if not managed properly. In order to mitigate these risks, in December 2022, the Bank of England began tiering incoming CCPs. So incoming CCPs are now assessed to establish the degree to which they might pose risk to UK financial stability. As part of the process, the Bank of England assesses whether it has deep cooperative relationships with the CCP's home authority in order to place informed reliance on it. Incoming CCPs that are designated as tier two, meaning it is systemically important or likely to become systemically important for the financial stability of the UK, are subject to direct UK supervision and regulation. Conversely, a tier one designated CCP is a CCP for which the bank has determined it is possible to place an informed reliance on the CCP's home authority. And tier one CCPs are therefore not subject to direct UK supervision or regulation. Okay, thanks, Lucy. Uh, Anna, is the EU undertaking any similar risk-based assessment of incoming CCPs? Yes, Simon. So in the EU, pairing of CCPs has been introduced to the EMIR framework by the so-called EMIR 2.2 amendments that were adopted in 2019. So the tiering system is risk-based and the third country CCPs are categorized on the basis of the level of risks they pose to the financial stability of the EU or one or more member states. And ESMA has so far identified only two tier two CCPs, these being um, LCH Limited and Ice Clear Europe Limited, both based in the UK, and all other third country CCPs recognized in the EU are tier one. So there are 43 of those in total. Thank you, Anna. Well, that concludes this latest Split the Difference podcast. My thanks to my colleagues for sharing their insights um, today. There's really quite a few new rules to be implemented in both the EU and UK, and so it will be interesting to watch it all take shape. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.